0: You all having a good week? Awesome. Okay, so my name's Nate Maywald. I'm. A <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> um, my name's Nate Maywald. I'll be a senior this year at Johns Creek High School. Go, Gladiators! Awesome. So, um, a little bit about me. Uh, I grew up in Decatur, Georgia, which is about half an hour away from here. Um, and then about six years ago, I moved up here to Perimeter. And uh, I graduated from Primitive Christian. Go Eagles! Um, so uh, I love to play soccer. I love to fish. And uh, I really love my family. Um, but before I get too much into that, uh, let me just pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for Gold Rush. Just um, this awesome week-long celebration of you, Lord. Um, thank you for all the amazing things you've, do- you're- you've done and that you're going to continue doing this week. Um, Lord, would you please take away my nerves and let everything that uh, comes out of my mouth be of you, Um, and that anything that isn't, that would just be completely forgotten, Lord. Um, Thank you for your son and his sacrifice um, on the cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So, this is my family, or whichever way. Um, So, this is my mom, my dad, my sister Abby, who's three years older than me, Um, me and my braces, not. Not missing that. Um, And my awesome dog, uh, Mercy. So, um, growing up for me was a little bit different than most families. Um, About um, three years before I was born, and when he was 29, uh, my dad was diagnosed with colon cancer. Um, And so, uh, they went to have surgery on him, and they opened him up, and they immediately closed him. And they told him that there was nothing that they could do for him, that the cancer had already progressed too far, um, and that he had about three months left to live. But God worked uh, such a cool miracle, and he preserved my dad's life, and my dad continued to fight um, the cancer past the doc- when the doctors told him he'd be able to. Um, so uh, my dad dealt with cancer for 16 years. He was re-diagnosed four different times and told to ho- go to hospice five different times. Um, In total, he had 29 major surgeries, and he had five different protocols of chemo. Um, And so we did all kinds of treatment, and we actually went all around the U.S. um, getting kind of experimental treatment. Um, But uh, as part of the experimental treatments, we were always on the craziest diets. Um, So it started out vegetarian. So it's not that uncommon, right? Just not eating any meat. But then we went vegan, and so that mean, meant no more animal products, so no more milk, no more cheese, none of that, on top of being vegetarian. And then things got really weird, so then we started this, this sprout diet, and that meant you had this little seed, and it grew this little green shoot, and that's all we ate for months. Um, and we also had this raw diet, so that meant we could eat nothing that was cooked over 108 degrees. And also, we dehydrated like everything else. Um, so you can imagine like how uncomfortable I felt um, as I was eating my soaked almonds and my broccoli sprouts. And other third graders were slowly like backing away down the lunch table away from me. Um, my family jokes about how if we had a penny for every time we hear, oh what is that then we 'd be millionaires, um, so we 're very used to that um, but uh, so we had um, a lot of different signs in our house that say hope, um, and that was something that I grew up with a lot. Um, I always heard this idea of hope and that God um, was the great physician that he could heal uh, any ailment or any sickness, and I always just assumed that he would. Um, my dad had had three months to live and God had healed him, um, and he had spared him um, from that. And so I always just assumed that um, as he kept fighting cancer, that God would eventually heal him. And so I was in denial that God would ever take my dad from me. Um, and in that, uh, my hope lay in an outcome. So Monday night, Emily came and talked to us about how um, we are created, how we were created good and um, with specific purpose. And then last night, Reagan talked to us about this quest for glory and about how we chase our own ambitions and desires, how we push God out, and it eventually leads to collapse. Well, tonight we talk about how God uses collapse for redemption and how he uses it to build us back up. Um, In April of 2012, um, my mom and dad sat my sister and I down uh, in our living room And they told us that um, there's nothing else we could do for my dad. And that he had about a two-week time frame left to live. And that he was going to hospice. And I was shocked. I had this idea that my dad was always going to be healed. And that despite being told time and time again that um, he was going to hospice, that he would still live. And so when... We got told that there was nothing we could do. There wasn't any experimental. There was nothing left. It shocked me. And so when I found out the news, I stood up. And I walked out of my house. And then I began to run. And I just sprinted down our street. And I didn't care where I was going. I don't care what I was about to do. I just wanted to get away from my problems. Um, In the Bible... Uh, God asked this prophet Jonah to go to um, this uh, really dangerous city to go preach called Nineveh. And Jonah is so against it. And so he gets on a boat and he sails away. And that was me. I wanted nothing to do with what God was about to do. Um, So after running miles, and I had no idea where I was, I was lost. Uh, I eventually just collapsed in a ditch. And I just lay there and I cried and I was so angry and bitter at God. And I started to yell at him, to ask him these questions. It started out with, God, why me? I thought I was a good person. I thought that because of who I am, I got to live an easy life. And then I started asking other ones, God, what could possibly good come out of this? This situation, it sucks. So why does this have to happen? I thought you were good, God. How could a good and just God let this happen? And then my final question was, God, why? Why would you let this happen? And then God said to me, not out loud, but quietly and clearly in my heart, because I love you. Because I love you. And that just made me take a step back because that was not what I expected him to say to me. And so it kind of got me to thinking, why does, God, um, why does God bring suffering onto his people? Why can't we just live this easy and relaxed life? Why does any of this have to happen? So I went back home, and I spent a lot of time with my dad. Um, and then I watched his health fully deteriorate and pass away. And after he died, I felt so broken. I felt so weak, like nothing I did really mattered. I felt like life was going to continue throwing me challenges that I couldn't face. And then it was going to move past me so much faster than I could keep up with. I felt like I was truly just a piece of wreckage lying there. Like a piece of junk lying in a ditch. I was at rock bottom. Up until this point, I've been trying to do this all by myself. But now I felt utterly and entirely broken. Like there was nothing else I could do to piece my life back together. I I looked like that tower, like every single part of me was just scattered, and I had no idea how to pick it up, how to put it back together. But this is where God found me. I saw that I could no longer do this alone. And it was through this hardship that I learned one of the most valuable lessons, that it's while we're at our weakest, that that's the time that we realize our intense need for God. When we have collapsed, we're incapable of piecing our lives back together. But God, the master architect, can. I saw how broken I was and how tainted I am on my own. And that really hurt me and it made me feel guilty at first. But it was through that that I saw God's love for me. That despite how low I was, how broken, how filthy and sinful I am, that God still loves me. And he loved me enough to send his one and only son to die on the cross for me just so that I can have a relationship with him, so that when God looks down and he sees me, he sees his son living inside of me. Okay, so C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and he illustrates this struggle. Yeah, yeah, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> so, uh, so he illustrates this struggle for control um, in his third book of the Chronicles of Narnia series, The Dawn Treader. So I don't know if y'all love the Chronicles of Narnia series. Yes? <laughs> Okay, so um, for those of you who don't know, and you definitely need to read them and see the movies because they're awesome. Um, So for those of you who don't know, the Chronicles of Narnia series are uh, these Christian-based books that revolve around um, these children from our world who get sucked into uh, the fantasy world of Narnia by Lewis's representation of Christ, whose name is Aslan and is a lion. Um, And so... This particular book is all about this boy named Eustace, who gets sucked into Narnia and is rescued by this ship called the Dawn Treader. And it's exploring these unknown seas of the east. And so, when he gets there, Eustace hates everything. And he complains about everything. And everybody who goes to Narnia loves Aslan. But... Eustace hates him because Eustace is quite the know-it-all. He needs to let everybody know that he knows everything about everything. But the thing about Aslan is he's unpredictable and he's mysterious. And so because of that, Eustace can't stand him. So the whole book, whenever Aslan comes near him, he turns away from him and he tries to avoid him. Um, So at this particular part in the book... um, Eustace uh, sneaks away from the crew who's repairing uh, the Dawn Treader, the ship, um, on uh, an uninhabited island. And so as Eustace is sneaking away, um, he starts to explore this island. And while he's there, he finds this cave. And he goes into this cave, and he immediately sees this huge treasure. And the thing he doesn't know about this treasure is that it's a dragon's treasure. And um, basically that means that whoever lusts over the gold um, turns into a dragon. And so Eustace is automatically just infatuated with this treasure. Um, And it turns him into a dragon. And at first, he feels powerful. He feels like he's so strong. But the thrill quickly wears off. He soon feels this, this intense wave of hopelessness, of sadness feels like he can't relate to anybody anymore and that he's an outcast now. And, um, and this is when Aslan comes and finds him. Now up until this point, Eustace would have run from him. He would have said, stay away from me and walked away. But in his vulnerability and in the state where he just feels so weak, that is when he realizes he needs Aslan. So Aslan tells him to follow him. And uh, they go into this forest, and they come to this clearing. And inside this clearing is this little pool. And Aslan says, undress. And so at first he's like, okay, this is weird, I'm a dragon. But then he realizes that Aslan wants him to shed his skin like a snake. So he starts to claw at himself, and the scales start to come off. And he actually gets a whole layer off, and he steps out of it. He goes over to the pool. But when he looks into the reflection, he still sees a dragon. And he looks back at the layer that he shed and he sees how thin it is. So he starts to do it again and again and each layer is still thin and he's getting nowhere. But that's when he realizes that he needs Aslan to do it. He realizes how incapable and and how he just can't pull it off himself. So Aslan comes over and he puts his claws into Eustace's skin and he starts pulling it off. And it's the most excruciating, the most painful thing that he's ever felt. And it hurts so bad. But soon, he steps out of this thick dragon hide in his human form. And he's been renewed. He's been refreshed. Not only on the outside as a human, but on the inside. Now he's caring. He's compassionate. Um, and this is what God does for us. We all have this dragon skin that enslaves us. We all have this casing that we cover ourselves and we try and find our our identity and rest in that. But we'll soon find out that this false sense of security, that this dragon skin, it enslaves us and it hurts us. And that's why we need Christ to rip it off. So I want to ask you, what dragon skin is keeping you from seeing your need from God? So one of my many skins was pride. I thought that I was a good person. I wasn't going out and I wasn't partying hard or or drinking or doing any of that stuff. I thought I was a good person. And so I thought that that warranted me an easy life, a life that wasn't filled with pain or suffering. But after my dad died, God showed me just how flawed my plans were. And because of that, and because I could embrace that and see how filthy I am apart from him, I could move on with my anger with him. But then yet again, I started to live way too comfortably. I started to think that this had been my test and that from now on, my life wouldn't be hard, that I'd already gone through this hardship and that was going to be it for my life. Um, and with that, I stopped crying out to God. I pushed him out. I put myself back in control. And then, um, so earlier this year, Um, I noticed like a little bump on the back of my leg, and I thought it was nothing. And so we went into the dermatologist, and they said, oh, don't worry about this. This is called a granuloma, um, which is basically just a muscle trauma injury, which has just caused a little bit of tissue to pop out. And so we thought it was fine, and so she said, all right, we'll just cut it off. So they did, and I went home with no worries. And then in April of this year, we got a call back from her, and she said, Nate, I'm sorry, but this is skin cancer. And that <laughs> blindsided me. Um, and after a few uh, future surgery, um, they told me that it was stage three melanoma, that the dermatologist had just gotten the tip of a larger mass in my leg. And that it being stage three, it had moved on to other parts of my body. They also told me that it was metastatic. Which basically means that it has the possibility to go anywhere in my body. And is also microscopic. And so, as you guys can imagine, this blindsided me. I thought I was done with cancer. I thought that I had my fair share of cancer. And now I had it. So the weight in the news automatically just brought me to my knees. It brought me to the end of myself. I couldn't do anything but surrender myself to God. I thought I have nothing left, God, but the little bit I have left, it's yours because I'm tired of trying to control my own life. Every time that I try and put myself in control and push you out, I lose all my hope. And with that, my hope shifted from an outcome, from a situation that I couldn't dictate to having my future in the arms of an all-knowing and all-powerful God. So this year, in my discipleship group, um, we've been studying the book of Romans, and Romans 12 gave me a lot of hope after being diagnosed. Um, It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this idea of a living sacrifice had a really neat impact on me. And I think it's so cool because as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, God burns away our impurities. But guys, that's the thing. It hurts to get burned. It does not feel good when God tears off our dragon skin. But we need it, because unless he does, we remain impure. So God's been showing me that when I first asked Christ in my heart, I was only asking him into a small part of it. I only wanted him to be there when it, was, um, when it was nice for me. But now that I've given it all to him, I see just such a great value in that. I felt like I needed to hold on to as much as I could in my life. But again, once I let it go to God... I was comforted by the fact that my future's with him. So what is it that you're hanging on to? What is it that you're not willing to surrender fully, but maybe you know you should? And although my future health plans, they're not secure here on earth, I'm comforted by the fact that my eternity is in the arms of God. God's plan is so cool because collapse not only makes us stronger and it makes us more like him, but it allows us to show others the love of Christ, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Collapse is inevitable in all of our lives. Whether it's the end of a relationship that we've been holding on to tightly or disappointment at school, we're all gonna collapse. We're all gonna become wreckage. But in Christ, we're beautiful wreckage. In fact, God uses our hardship and our collapse to strengthen us. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Our brokenness and our insufficiency is where God's power is perfect. He doesn't say where when we're in easy times, that's when it's made perfect. He says when we're weak, when we feel broken, that's when it's perfect. We can have hope in weakness because we know God is working. We can have hope because Christ died for us and now lives inside of us. We can have hope because collapse creates a foundation that's rooted inside of Him. And because of what He's done on the cross and in my life, I I now not only understand hope, but I have it. Because although we may find ourselves lost and we may find ourselves in a ditch, God uses that for something amazing. If you all pray with me. Lord God, thank you so much that you never leave us in our brokenness and our wreckage. That because of your love for us, we're beautiful wreckage. Thank you for who you are and your unending grace. Lord, give us a safe rest of the week. In Jesus' name, amen.